Oh, well, hello, hello, guys. It is, it is lovely to be here for tonight and a pleasure to kind of carry on from John. For those of you who do not know me, I am Johnny. I've been a member of the congregation here, kind of the 20s and 30s, for around four years now. I'm, kind of, I'm married to Jo, who was playing in the band this evening. She's kind of sat looking a bit embarrassed on the front row. She actually asked me to play keyboard kind of back in the day, which would have meant missing Monday night's football practice. So I was rather pleased when David asked me to preach instead. So um, tonight, um, let us keep the passage of Scripture open in front of you. We'll be bouncing around, whether that's on your kind of Bible or if you're kind of hip and young, whether it's on your phone. And let us pray as we begin. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and for the privilege that it is to study it today. We pray that this evening, as we look at your word in John, in John, that you would guide us, Lord, that you would reveal your purposes to us, and that we would leave today knowing you better than we did when we came in. Amen. Grand. So, this evening, we continue with the fifth instalment of our series on John. When David sent me the kind of teaching notes on John, I had a flick through, and there are actually 18 sessions on John. We are doing nothing but John until Easter. It's like kind of watching Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings back to back. It is John everywhere. And I was really confused as to why we'd be looking at John for so long. And then I realized that actually half of our staff team are now called John, <laughs> which I think <laughs> is probably, probably the reason. Anyway, John is a wonderful and a brilliant gospel, and tonight we're going to be thinking a bit about what it means to have abundant life. So we begin this evening with a question. When you hear the idea of abundant life, when you think about a life that has been lived well, if someone that has, in a sense, lived a good life, what sort of behaviours or thoughts or people come into your mind? Who do you think of when you think of someone who has lived a good life? So I've got a few examples for you. So Rory, if we have the first slide. Grant, so the first person who might have been said to have lived a good life is Bear Grylls. I'm guessing kind of most of us recognise who Bear Grylls is. Like, do we kind of generally know? Great, most people do. For those of you who don't, he is a kind of adventure TV producer. He kind of jumps in a helicopter. His kind of producers fly him off to like a remote rainforest in Bhutan. They drop him off and he's got nothing but himself and he must survive for three days. He kind of lives in quite a wild way on these tours. Like he might kind of wrestle a great white shark or kind of, I don't know, drink his own urine out of a snake skin. He does all these exciting things. And he is someone who certainly lives a life that is full of adventure. We could say that he's someone who's drunk in a lot of the goodness of the earth that God has given for us. You might say he's someone who's lived a good life. And he says this wonderful quote. I really like him. And he says, I, for one, do not want to reach the end of my life in a perfectly preserved body. I want to come flying in sideways, covered in scars, Beaten up yet screaming, Yahoo, what a ride. I really, I really enjoy his focus on adventure. I try to incorporate it into my own life, but with substantially less success or financial benefit than Bear does. So, Bear Grylls, adventure, a good way to live life. Second slide, please, Rory. The second person who you might say 
that is, lives an abundant life is Queen. That is our Queen Elizabeth. Any kind of big royalists in here? Anyone like quite a good fan of the Queen? One or two. Unfortunately, John has not put up his hand, and seeing as the Queen is the head of the Church of England, that's probably a problem because she's your boss, John. <laughs> I don't know if she conducts monthly appraisals with you yet, but maybe that's for the bishop level. That might be in stool. However, the Queen is a woman that I respect greatly, and I think she's lived a life that has been characterised by a remarkable sense of duty. She has sat on the English throne as of last Wednesday, Wednesday, the British throne, sorry, for 24,806 days. 24,806 days she has been queen. It is utterly remarkable. And she clearly goes about her daily life with a real sense of duty to her country and Jesus as the saviour. And in doing so, she embodies a way of life that was really kind of championed and acclaimed by the ancient Greeks. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he said, the good life is a life that is characterized by virtuous deeds. He said the good life, kind of, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter necessarily what is going on in your heart. What matters is that you act good and well and justly each day. And he said this as a quote. He said, It is well said, then, that it is by doing good acts that the good man or woman is produced, and doing just acts that the just man is produced, and doing kind acts that the kind man is produced. Without doing these actions, no one would have even a prospect of becoming good. So we had Bear Grylls with a venture. We had the Queen of England with a sense of duty. And now we have a third image of what a good and full life might look like. This man here, I'm sure you all recognize him. This is Donald Trump, the President of the United States of America. A very controversial man. He's probably not the person you think of when you think of someone that has lived a good life or a life to the full. However, Donald Trump captures a very popular worldly philosophy of what it is to live a good life. Trump is incredibly wealthy. He has lived his whole life in luxury. Ever since the first day he was born, he'd have been kind of fed on the finest foods. He goes on the best planes. He stays in the best hotels and the best beds. He plays golf, probably quite badly, on the best courses. He's someone who has drunk in a lot of the pleasures that life has to afford. And similarly, this sort of life was, in a way, championed by parts of Greek philosophy, The Greek philosopher Epicurus championed the idea of pleasure as the main ingredient of a good life. He wasn't too kind of concerned with your kind of inner virtue or living, doing kind of good or ethical deeds. But his focus was that if you live pleasurably and avoid suffering, you've lived a good life. He's not a Christian Epicurus, no, is he? Okay, that's great. No, that's good, that's good. And I don't, I don't contend either side on that. So, I think, and if we can get Trump off the screen, just I, don't, I think he, if he was sat there, the whole thing, it would intimidate me. Um, but I hope those three examples have given us a slight window, a few ideas of what living a good life might be. And so, the question I pose to all of us here is that one day in 10, 20, 40, 60, 80 years, when we are at the end of the road, when we kind of lie on our deathbed, when our days are done, how would we like to be remembered? 
what kind of deeds or characteristics or things that we have done in our lives would we like to be remembered by? Perhaps it's that we were very good or kind or courageous or brave or godly. But what is it and how is it that we want to be remembered? And so through the lens of John, those are the questions that we'll be thinking about tonight. And I think that Jesus' idea is greater than anything we've looked at so far. So, jumping into John, I think in order to understand what is going on in the Bible or in any book in the Bible, it's really important that we first understand something of the context. The Bible was not kind of created in a vacuum. It didn't come kind of flying in on the spiritual airways. It was written by people. The images they use are images of their times. So the Bible was written by over 40 authors over a period of almost a 1,000 years. Some of those authors were poets, some were philosophers, some were kings, some were doctors, a whole range of people. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And each of those different people who wrote the Bible had a purpose. They had something that they were trying to convey or get across of God's goodness. Nevertheless, that isn't to say in any sense that the Bible is less godly. I think that is clear in Timothy, where it says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So a way that we might usefully think about the Bible is like Jesus. In the same way that Jesus is fully human and yet simultaneously fully God, we might see the Bible in the same light. That it's a book that is written and has been influenced by humans, yet at the same time it is fully divine, and every page of it attests to God's goodness. So, as we now jump into the passage we're looking at tonight, which is John 7, I want you to try and bear the context in mind as we go. And in terms of the context of John, John was one of the later Gospels. Generally, it's thought that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before John, and that John came afterwards, perhaps between 30 and 50 years after Jesus' death. And why that's important is because John was writing in a different sort of way, is that because he'd been around for longer, because he had more time to digest and prayerfully think about what Jesus had taught, his gospel is, in a sense, seen as more spiritual. He focuses more on what it is to know God, what it is to be an evangelist. He was influenced more by the trends within the early church. And that is abundantly clear in the purpose of the book. John is really, John is really helpful in purpose. He literally tells you what the purpose is in John 20, verse 31. He says that the book is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'll read it again. He says, The book is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by by believing you may have life in his name. And so the book of John is an evangelistic book. That is one of its main purposes. It is written in every page and every image and every metaphor in it is designed so that we may come to believe in God and have life in his name. So as we jump into the passage now, just kind of bear that in mind that firstly, it's a book that was written a bit later, a bit longer after the death of Jesus and he's had more time to think and digest the themes and the teachings. 
And secondly, that it's an evangelistic book, that John's purpose in writing to us is to try and convince us that Jesus is the Messiah and that we can have life in his name. So, jumping into the, into the passage in John 7. What is going on? What is happening? What's happened before? What is Jesus doing when he's speaking about living water and everything else? So, John 7 is a difficult point in Jesus' ministry. At this point, he has already done a lot of miracles. He's turned water to wine. He's kind of kicked the merchants out of the temple. His disciples have seen him do wonderful and miraculous things. Yet, we see in the, in the book that his disciples aren't completely convinced. In John 6, it says this. It says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So despite the great things he's done, the wonderful miracles, the good works, Jesus' disciples are not completely convinced. Not all is going well in Jesus' camp. And to add more to boot, we read at the start of John 7 that Jesus is hiding in Galilee because he fears for his life. It says this. It says, Jesus went around in Galilee and he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. And so it's a really difficult juncture in Jesus' life. He's kind of started. He's done some great miracles. He's accumulated a following. Yet some of those followings are not completely convinced. They don't know if he's the Messiah or just a troublemaker. Is he what he says he is? And the Jewish leaders see him as a threat, someone that's causing trouble, getting in the way. They want him out. They want to kill him. If he was a kind of football manager in the kind of first century, there'd be talk on the back pages about him being dismissed. Paddy Power would be kind of slashing odds on Jose Mourinho coming in till the end of the season. And it's at this messy and difficult time that we see Jesus come to the festival of the tabernacles. And at the seventh day of the festival, the kind of climax, Jesus says this, as we saw in our verse. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living waters will flow within them. And then John adds, by this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. I'll say it one more time. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. And by this, he meant the spirit. Those who believed in him were later to receive. And the, the moment in which he says this is really important. So in the festival of the tabernacles, where Jesus currently is, one of the main thing that, things that happened is that each day, the high priest would take some water and he'd get a bucket and he would take this water from what they thought was a holy well. The water would then be processed around an altar, and whilst it was processed around the altar, the other rabbis would sing over it from psalms. The water was venerated with a great deal of spiritual significance. It was supposed to resemble God and God's spirit and God's covenant to the Jewish people. And Jesus didn't just make this claim to be living water on any day. He made it on the seventh and final day of the festival. And on the seventh and final day, rather than just doing this once, rather than just drawing up this water once and taking it around the altar and singing over it, they did it seven times. It was the climax of the whole thing. 
And it was supposed to be the fulfillment of the idea that the water represented God and God's spirit. And it's in this moment that Jesus jumps up and he says, no. He says, I am the living water. He says, I can give you this spirit. It's a massively controversial claim. And if you think back to the kind of context in terms of what might be going on, it's the final day of the festival. There are likely people singing and chanting. There's a lot of noise and a lot of commotion. In order for Jesus to be heard, he probably shouted. He probably caused a massive scene. He might have stood on a table. Who knows? It would have been hard to get people's attention. And it's at this point that Jesus says, no, it's not about this imagery of water. He says, I am he. I am the Messiah. I've come forward. I'm the living water you're searching for. Look for me, and it is in me that I will give you life to the full. It's a massively controversial thing to do. Everyone there knows what the water's about. They know it represents God and his spirit. And they know that by Jesus saying that it's about him instead, he is claiming to be the Messiah. It's a wonderful promise to us that that living water is available to everyone. And so at this point, it's, it's worth thinking, it's all very well and good hearing this story and hearing that Jesus comes and says, I'm the living water. It's all good understanding the messianic context that he's saying, I'm the king of the Jews. I can give you fullness of life. Yet the harder thing to do is to think about and to understand what that means for us today. It's really easy to hear that and feel encouraged and feel that you now understand a bit of your faith more. But what is harder is to step into the abundant life that Jesus is offering. What we need is a, we need an example. We need some behaviors. We need some things that we can do to try to step into the great gift that Jesus is offering to everyone. And the wonderful, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it gives us the absolutely perfect example of someone who has lived life to the full. More so than Bear Grylls, more so than um, the Queen or Trump. In the person of Jesus, we see a brilliant and a perfect example of what life to the full looks like. And I don't know about you guys, but when I, t- when I think about Jesus' life, it is so sensationally wonderful. It was wild. He kind of overturned these tables in the temples. He like threw around whips. It was kind of characterized by passion, by vigor. It was not a meek and mild life. It was a powerful life. And that was matched by a monumental love. He truly loved those who he came into touch with. He didn't just come into their lives briefly and then leave. He left and made a lasting impact on them. He forgave absolutely everybody, whether they deserved it or not. He showed care to those in society who were down and out. He would be found with the homeless and the prostitutes, those who other people would not want to come into contact with. He was a radically, sensationally brilliant man. And there's a, and there's a wonderful quote that in writing this talk I saw from a guy called Lord Hailsham. Can we get the next slide on the screen, Rory? I mean, you, to be fair, you won't be able to see that. There's a, there's a lack of, or maybe it's just me without my glasses. I can't read it, but I have it here, so I'll read it to you. It's a brilliant quote. And what it says is, it says this. It says, the first thing that we must learn about Jesus is that we should have been absolutely entranced by his company. Jesus was irresistibly attractive as a man. What they crucified was a young man, one who was vital, full of life and the joy of it. The Lord of life itself, and even more, the Lord of laughter. 
someone so utterly attractive that people followed him for the sheer fun of it. The 21st century needs to recapture the vision of this glorious and happy man whose mere presence filled his companions with delight. No pale Galilean he, but a veritable pied piper of Hamelin who would have children laughing all around him. It's a wonderful image. It's a wonderful image of of who Jesus was and how he lived. And I think that where we stand so long afterwards, we can get numb to the stories of his life and we can forget how dramatically brilliant it was. And I hope that brings it home. So as we kind of gradually come into land, two ways that we can start to move into this life of spiritual abundance and try to live just something of the legacy of Jesus. The first point, next slide please, Rory, is that we live a life in abundance when we have spiritual abundance. That we live a life in abundance when we have spiritual abundance. I think the abundance of life that Jesus and John talk about, I think the life by the Spirit that Jesus talks about through the living water, it's nothing, nothing, nothing about material or worldly things. It is, there is nothing there about having a lavish or a nice house. There's nothing there about having good cars or worldly success. It doesn't matter how well your life is going in material senses. That's not what this is about. Not that those things are bad, but they have absolutely no relevance to the question of what an abundance life is. What Jesus is talking about is spiritual abundance. And I find that such a wonderful and a brilliant equaliser in terms of our life. In that you can be sat here today and your life could be going brilliantly. You could have a wonderful job. You could have a lot of respect. You could have all the money you want. You could have a great family. You could have all these brilliant gifts and talents. Yet that doesn't matter in terms of what we're looking at here. The questions you need to ask and the only questions you need to ask is, how is my relationship with God? How close am I with him? Do I trust him? Do I know him deeply? Those are the questions to ask. And then the flip side is also true, in that you can sit here and you can just be right at the worst point in your life. You could have very few friends. You can be feeling crippling loneliness. You could come from a very broken relationship. You might have no money. You could be in debt. You could be trapped in an addiction to drugs or alcohol or pornography or whatever it might be. And those things are not the qualifiers for an abundant life. What matters again is this, and it is open to all. How is your relationship with the Lord? How close are you with him? How is your walk with him going? And it's not to say in any sense that those things don't matter, but it's a wonderful leveler that no matter what has gone before, Jesus' invitation is to drink from the water of everlasting life and to move into fullness of life with him. So life in abundance is life with spiritual abundance. And the final point that we're going to move on to today is the importance of life in abundance being a continual process. So the abundant life that we read about in the Bible is not a one-time event. Jesus doesn't kind of come in and like zap you one day and from that moment on things are never the same and you're always a perfect Christian. That's not what it's about, and that's not what is going on here. You might have a moment of conversion, and from that moment on, you try to live as a Christian. However, all of us will know that it is a daily struggle and something that we work out each day. 
And so what we know is that a life of abundance is not one where you live perfectly, but it is one where you prayerfully try to live well each day. It's not necessarily about whether you succeed, but it is about whether you try, whether you walk with Jesus in your life, whether you are trying to get closer with him, whether each day you look a little bit more like him than you did when you woke up. And so you could, go with this, you could go away from this evening with a great desire to maybe talk to one of your colleagues about God. You might think, yes, I need to step out more boldly in my faith. I need to be more like Jesus was. And I need to actually talk to people at my workplace about Jesus. And then on Monday, you might arrive into work and you're feeling awful. It's been a terrible weekend. You're very tired and you might just not do it. And what I say is don't beat yourself up. Don't stop. Press in. Carry on. It's a daily task to live like Jesus lived. And we cannot do it alone. Do it prayerfully. Similarly, maybe there is a friend or family member in your life who you might decide today that you want to make more of an effort with, that you want to show more of the unconditional love that Jesus showed to them. And then you might go away and next weekend you have a family meal and they make a remark you don't like and you react badly. You speak negatively of them. You say something that makes them look small. And again, the lesson is don't beat yourself up about it. Recognize it as bad. Pray and try not to do it again, but press in. Carry on. None of us are perfect finished products, and we never will be as long as we live. Don't beat yourself up about the things that go wrong. It's a life of daily transformation. Pray into it. You're forgiven. And carry on doing better each day. And there's one quote from C.S. Lewis that, as we land, I think captures this really well. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if we let him into our lives, for, of course, we can prevent him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. And I just find that a wonderful quote around the continual process of drawing closer to God and living more like him in our lives. And so what I will say as we close is that, as I hope I've captured a little bit today, this is not about knowing something. It's not about knowing or understanding the perfect context of every Bible verse. It is about a feeling, an intention, an empowering by God's spirit to live a life like Jesus did. And so what we're going to do now is we're not just going to think about it, we're going to do it. And we're going to stand here and say, all of us together, that we know we cannot do it by ourselves, that the only way we can do it is through God's Spirit. And we're going to ask today that he comes and he dwells in us in a stronger way. He fills us up afresh today and empowers us to move forward in his name. So what I'll do now is I'll invite the band up to play in the background and also John up to join. And I'd like to invite us all to stand up as well if you're able. Everyone jump up and we're going to spend some time now in prayer together. We're going to pray for this fullness of life via God's Spirit to come and dwell in us. Lord Jesus and Heavenly Father, 
We thank you so much for your presence here this evening, Lord. We thank you for the ways that you are working in different people. We thank you so much for your promise in John, Lord, that you are the living water and that through you we can have abundant life in your name, Lord. And I pray that right now, this evening, not, not necessarily tomorrow or not or next week, Lord, but tonight, I pray you would fill us anew with your spirit. I pray that you would come down again, Lord. Where there is weariness, I pray that you would bring energy. Where there is fatigue or lethargy, I pray that you would bring a sense of power and commitment and drive. Where there has been a sense of disappointment, the times that we've tried really hard to live a life that represents yours in the past, but we haven't got it right. Well, we haven't got it right in the past, Lord. I pray you'd bring a sense of grace and forgiveness, Lord, that we would know that we are forgiven and you're on the sidelines cheering us on, Lord. And as we do this and press in, I'll just encourage you guys just to keep going. You might not feel anything straight away. You might feel like you're just standing here like a bit of an idiot asking Jesus to come into your life and fill you again. That's fine. Keep pressing in. In Luke, he promises, he says this. He says, knock and the door will be open to you. Seek and you will find. If you pray for God's spirit, he will give it to you.